0: Hi, it's Brett Cal, and this is the Total Life Complete Podcast, coming to you from Deep Ellum, Texas. Today, I'm here with Jacqueline Twilley, career coach, instructor, and pay parity advocate. Welcome, Jacqueline.
1: Thanks. I'm excited to join you.
0: It's my pleasure to have you on the show, finally. So thanks for making the time to come along today. Um, hopefully, today, we'll talk a little bit about negotiation, perhaps about work-life balance. Uh, whether Atlanta and Dallas are the same city in different locations or not, and uh, maybe about names later on, we'll see how we go.
1: Okay. Sounds good.
0: So the first question I ask all the guests is how do you introduce yourself at a party when people ask who you are?
1: Yeah, so when I meet people at a party, I tell them that I'm on a mission to eliminate the gender wage gap. That typically strikes up a couple of follow-up questions after that.
0: I've heard you introduce yourself a a few times before, and I was so excited about getting you on the show. What do people normally say? What's the next question?
1: So the next question most common is, so am I making enough money? And I always laugh because... I just met you, I don't know how much money you earn or what the industry averages, the market rate. So um, it's a good a good question. The other question that people typically say is, uh, if it's a, a man, um, do really women really earn less? And uh, part of my job as an advocate for equal pay is just to educate people and let them know that there is a pay disparity between men and women across all industries.
0: That was really my first question as well. And I, I want to go back to introductions maybe in a second. I think it's fascinating when people meet, you, you know, I can imagine if you're a doctor, you know, people are going to say, well, I've got an ache down here. And, you know, when I worked for a company that did technology as part of what they did in the past, people were like, can you fix my computer? <laughs> yeah. hey, can you do my taxes? It's like, oh, that's weird. But anyway, um, so it's good to hear that that, ca- that carries over to other occupations. So, so let's start there. What is the gender pay gap?
1: The gender wage gap... Um right now 2017 women earn on average about 80 cents on a dollar compared to their male white Hispanic counterparts so for for black women it's 64 cents for uh, Native American and Latino women it's about 54 52 cents on a dollar so it's mind-blowing people often think well that's because women are in low-wage jobs like education and housekeeping and true those industries are dominated by women, but even when you look at women who are lawyers and doctors, there's still a pay gap there. So pretty much what we see is that um, some of it is due to discrimination, some of it is unconscious bias. Where I come in and I teach women how to negotiate is that some of it is because women just don't ask. They're so grateful to have a job and they don't want to rock the boat and they've been socialized from a young age to be grateful, to say please and thank you, so when they get an offer, they just want to show their appreciation. Not understanding that, that first offer is often not the very best offer, and that the employer is expecting a little negotiation. So, because there are a lot of factors that contribute to the gender wage gap, the one thing that we can control is making sure we ask each time. And men are eight times more likely to negotiate than women are when they get a job offer. And so um, that's what I do. I, I give women the tools that they need to have those conversations and not just do it like a man, you know, uh, because research shows that women have to use a different strategy when they negotiate.
0: Those factors, um, you know, being grateful for a job, how, how does that differ between men and women or is it just women react more or differently to that?
1: So there's um. This famous study and I don't know if it's true or not I heard it's an urban myth but uh, when men look at a job description they could have six of the ten qualifications and they're like oh yeah I could do that job I can nail it you know that's that confidence factor if a woman looks at that job and she has eight of the ten she's gonna say ah oh, I would love to do this job but I'm not all the way qualified. So women tend to want to be overqualified, having a slight lack of confidence. There's a great book called The Confidence Code. And it really breaks down the psychology behind that. And and they've done a lot of research surrounding it. But men just have, you know, more confidence. And that's why they are more likely to negotiate.
0: I know you've published a number of books and workbooks and, and videos and, and podcasts. And I, I've listened to a number of those prior to, to, to today, and I've just been fascinated. Where do you start?
1: Like I mentioned earlier, the first part is education. When I learned about the gender wage gap a few years ago, I didn't know if it was real or not. So I was at a networking event for women. It was Equal Pay Day. And I left that event kind of like, really, it's, you know, I think at the time it was 2013. Is there really a pay gap? Uh, Fast forward, I started doing research and I realized it was real and I got ticked off, honestly, and I decided to do something. A lot of women that I encounter, they're in the same position, you know, over the past I would say year and a half, a lot of celebrities have brought the pay gap to the forefront, whether it's actresses or you know sports players like Serena Venus Williams, they've been really big advocates for the pay gap. So now that we have more celebrities talking about it, more women are aware, but they're still unsure where to start. So when someone reaches out to me, my first thing is, do you know what the market rate is? You know, What's the going rate for someone with your experience in your geographic area, uh, in your industry. A lot of times they don't know where to start. So that first part is let's figure out what your market rate is to go from there because some people, um, they just have no idea how vastly underpaid they are.
0: You're giving people an idea first of what the the landscape looks like and what what they're potentially aiming for. what happens next
1: what happens next is you develop a strategy so the framework that i use has four steps it's um repair practice ask and then evaluate if you should accept it or walk away, right? So in that prep phase, it's going beyond that online data that you can find about salary ranges and really tapping into your personal network, talking to people. For women, I really encourage them to talk to a male in the industry, because as we already discussed, women get paid less, so don't go to your girlfriend. But instead of coming out and saying, hey, how much do you make? Nobody's going to answer that. Uh, the way that you do it is say, I'm thinking about you know, testing my skills in the market. For a graphic designer with about four years years of experience with my background is $62,000 sound about right and so uh, does that sound about right so someone's gonna come to you and they're gonna say well that sounds a little low or that's kind of high for someone with your experience so you benchmark that and then you think about the things that are important to you because salary is important but there are other things you can negotiate for beyond salary so Really, doing your research to figure out what's common in the industry. You know, is it common to get someone to pay for your professional association fees and the conference to attend that professional association? What's becoming increasingly popular is tuition uh, assistance, but student loan payment repayments. So looking at what's standard for your industry, because a company who's looking to uh, attract top talent, they're gonna give you all of the bells and whistles, but if you don't know about it, you can't ask. So figuring out what those important things are, and then just like you're gonna go in for a job interview, research who you're talking to, right? So, you know, look at their personality style. Do a quick search on LinkedIn, Twitter to see what their interests are because you do want to strike a rapport at the beginning of that negotiation. And so I tell women as they're preparing, review the don'ts, right? So uh, in one of my workbooks, well, most of them I have the negotiation don'ts. So don't lie. Don't over embellish. Don't wing it. You know, if you're not prepared, you're going to clam up. You're going to get nervous. You're not going to act. You're going to say something silly. So kind of map out what you want to say. And then in part of your practice round, practice with a friend. Turn on your iPhone or whatever device you have. Record yourself. If you have video, you want to see how your body language looks. And then play that back. It's hard to hear yourself. A lot of people have a hard time listening to themselves audio or visual. But watch it. Because if you've never said $64,000 before, you think you sound confident, but it sounds like $64,000. And so uh, nobody's going to believe that you're worth that if you don't sound confident. So evaluate yourself after you record yourself. And then when you get to the position where you're going to ask have a strategy to get back on track when the conversation veers off because you're human, right? The conversation naturally will drift. So one of the things that I tell people to do is what are a couple of phrases that you can use when you notice the conversation's gone left to come back on track. And then once you get the offer, don't accept it right away. Decide if you're going to accept it or walk away. Not every offer is the very best offer. And sometimes You know, it's going to be a process of going back and forth for weeks because there's multiple people involved in that decision. But when you get the offer, review it in writing because that's a critical mistake a lot of people make. And so those four components, prepare and package, practice, ask and then decide if you're gonna accept it or walk away, that framework is what I tell anybody. So it doesn't matter which industry you're in, it doesn't matter how much experience you have, if you're just graduating or if you're switching uh, one industry to another, if you use that framework, you're gonna be prepared to set yourself up for success. So you're gonna get a little bit more of what you want versus just going in there and shooting from the hip.
0: This is not just for women specific. I thought a lot of this was really good advice so my first observation was and we'll put the link in the show notes you know if you're thinking about going looking for a job or going through a performance review go to your site and have a look whether you're a man or a woman uh, this is a excellent advice um, I, was my first observation and the second one is you know why don't you get taught this at school
1: you're absolutely right and that was one of the things that really shocked me when I started learning about the wage gap and ne- negotiation skills is Yeah, I have an MBA. And I remember in a couple of courses touching on negotiation, but it was like a half of a chapter in a textbook, right? It was no real practical information. It wasn't anything that I could take when I finished the MBA program to negotiate my salary. And so talking to a lot of my peers who are in uh, professional MBA associations I asked them what was your experience you know was it just my school that didn't teach me that and no it was across the board there are a lot of people who come out of college and master's degree programs and they don't have those skills to negotiate and um, I've talked to a couple of career centers the two universities I graduated from and I share with them the tips that I share with my clients because as someone who's coming from a university that I graduated from I want to help them be successful too and I feel like the university should invest more not just the College of Business but any uh, program that you graduate from you should want your students to go on and be successful and get the most money
0: there's some career advice going around uh when you're thinking about getting into a company that, you know, just get in there first and you can sort your pay out later on in a few years time, it'll all work itself out. Will it?
1: Uh, No, it will not. It's actually harder to negotiate once you're inside of the company. You have the most leverage at the very beginning of that relationship where, you know, it's um, that pre-honeymoon before you start working there and they think you're so awesome and you've just proven yourself against other candidates that they've been negotiating with. So yes, there's always room to negotiate once you're inside Um, performance review time i talk to a lot of people and i tell them the best time to negotiate isn't necessarily at performance review time it's at the beginning when you get the job and then on the heels of a big win so when you score big inside of that company that's your time to go in and ask for more money don't wait six months for all of that fizzle to die down
0: Do you also get involved in I don't know um, women's groups and government programs and other things like that? What are the other things that need to to change to kind of eliminate this pay gap?
1: Yeah. So last year, um, under the Obama administration, the White House hosted a summit for women. So I attended that, and one of the pillars of that summit was um, pay equity. So I attended uh, and provided some insight into some of the solution sessions about the gender wage gap and you know it spans across many different barriers and then following that summit uh, over at the department of treasury um, McKinsey did a great presentation on what it would take for women to reach equity uh, across the board and it was a really fascinating presentation so yes um, i I don't know what the u.s government's plan is now you know recently i read that they're going to roll back the legislation to um, move forward on pay transparency which I do think pay transparency is a really key component to helping people understand what the market rate is you know a lot of the websites that we use that's self-reported data so if you only have a small percentage of people sharing their pay you're not going to have the full picture which is why I say use that online data as a starting point but then talk to your network Uh, In cities like Boston, Massachusetts, they have a really, really strong um, platform for women's pay equity. So what they do is they have workshops for women, they teach them how to negotiate. They've also made it in the state of Massachusetts, um, I think it goes into effect this December, that employers can no longer ask your pay history as a requirement on a job application. So there is some things that different levels of government, State of California is doing some awesome things too, that are really putting um, to the forefront the things that hinder, you know, pay equity across the board. And so with women's groups, what I typically do for them is, I speak at a lot of conferences and do uh, breakout sessions at different groups. And it's just an education component, right? Yes, you can negotiate, and no, it's not a battle. You know, a lot of people think Oh, negotiation I got to put the dukes up put some boxing gloves on it's just the conversation so for people who are nervous my first tip to them is call your car insurance company or your cell phone provider and say hey am I getting the best rate that's negotiating you know and so when people think of it oh it's that easy just asking a question yeah it's it's that simple and that's a good way to, to tip your toe into negotiating
0: what role do companies have, like, you know, having worked at a number of big companies that always seem to have lots of diversity programs, how does that, has that actually translated through into pay, or, or is that, is that attracting people, but is the pay problem still there despite the, the need and the recognition of diversity?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I love that a lot of companies have this diversity initiative, but oftentimes when I see someone in a diversity role, they're a minority right? And so diversity doesn't come from just one small group, right? It comes from shared thought leadership across the board. And so when you're looking at an issue like the pay gap internally, um, it's a really complex issue, you know, and it costs a lot of money to bring people up to pay parity. So I know, um, I think Salesforce made a big move a few years ago, and they spent a lot of money to do an internal audit, bring people up to scale. Under the Obama administration, a lot of companies signed an equal pay pledge that they were gonna do um, the right thing by their employees. And the thing is this, when you value the contributions that your employees make, you wanna pay them fairly. And so a lot of systems were in place that have these unconscious biases in them. And it's not that people are ill-willed and they don't wanna pay all of their employees fairly, it's just these practices need to be reevaluated. So when I think of diversity and inclusion, it's don't just leave this as a minority group of people to do on the side as their extra project, right? Really take a serious approach to it and put your money behind it. And I know I get the Google Alerts on Google because they don't want to share their pay data. And so um, I think it's kind of fascinating that such a large company who promotes diversity and is um, you know, they say that they stand for diversity, but when it comes to this issue of diversity and looking at the pay, they're very tight-lipped about it. So I, I just think that's fascinating to see that.
0: From an economic point, uh, I, I guess companies uh, have always wanted to pay employees as, li- as little as possible. I, you know, I'd hate to state the, the obvious here, but... Um, the that, that typically, it, it's been a long. Uh, it's a long road to change that mindset to say, okay, here's a cost item on my PL, You know, salaries or your wages. I want to reduce that and make more profit. Versus, you know, how do I look at my employee not just as a as a cog in a machine, but a, as somebody who can generate top line. Uh, value and bottom line savings, you know, new ideas and things like that. I think not all companies get that. And this whole pay thing is all kind of still trapped up in in that old mindset.
1: Yep, I agree.
0: In the podcast, we're talking about how to get the most out of life. And, and, you know, you could say on one level that uh, you could say, oh, negotiation and getting more money. That's that's the opposite of living a good life. That's just being overly focused on, on money.
1: Yeah, so I often tell people, when you're negotiating in your career, you know, this is a long-term relationship you're going to have with an employer or a client, you know, whoever you're negotiating with, and the money is important, but it's not just the money. You know, you t- you focus on work-life balance and oftentimes a key component of me working with women and I, of course my advice can go for men and women. Uh, I focus on women, but I get a lot of men who come to me as well. And one of those things that we strategize on is how do you negotiate a flexible work schedule right Um, so whether that's summer care for people with children um, adoption assistance or that time off from work after they adopt uh, parental leave maternity and paternity all of those things can be negotiated you know even when you come back to work after such leave even if you're caring for parents you know so negotiation isn't just about salary It's about what's going to help you contribute the most to the organization. How can you maximize this mutually beneficial relationship?
0: If you're thinking about how to make the most out of life, and one of the relationships you're going to have typically is either be an entrepreneur or have a relationship with a company and then in that there's the kind of value element of it and you think about what value you can and do bring. Um, so I, I think it's an extension of that, of that process. I mean to, to really understand how much you're worth in quotes and putting air quotes up here. There's a process of, of thinking about value about what tasks you do and what bring value to the company and I think that's a great thing to understand and people might get fixated on uh, a number uh, and not really think about whether they're working to their strengths and whether what they're doing is still valuable to the company and, and, uh, and maybe ideas of how to make it more valuable. So I think there's, there's definitely a lot in to negotiation properly to really understand who you are and what you're doing. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, absolutely. Self-awareness is key in negotiation. Like, And I tell people, when you're thinking about the things you're going to ask for when you negotiate, especially before you take a new position, think about what are the things you need to do to be successful in that role, right? So if during the interview process, your questions should be strategic, not just, oh, what's your management style like? You know, not the fluff questions. Go a little bit deeper. I tell people, look at a job uh, description like a fill in the blank for a test because we all know when you get a job, you're going to be doing something that was not on that description and you're going to say, hey, this is not the job I signed up for. So because we know that, Treat it as such, treat that document as a fill in the blank. So if you see something on the job description that says special projects, inquire how many special projects are there? How long do they last? Who are the key partners? Right? And then how had these relationships gone before, you know, what were the pitfalls in these special projects? If they tell you, well, we didn't have enough staff or the software we were using was outdated. Well, ding, when you get the job offer, hey, I knew I'm gonna be tasked with these special projects. What can we do about giving me the proper resources so that I can be successful in this role? So it's your job to negotiate for those things, right? So get that software, get the equipment, get the staff that you need, and you learn that information upfront versus on the back end when you're crashing and burning because you didn't have what you needed to perform properly.
0: I listened with interest to one of your um, podcast, uh, maybe about, uh, or it might have been a video about work-life balance and and kind of how to assess the level of work-life balance in your potential job that you might be moving into.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, and I, I tell people it's not just for parents. I'm single, I don't have kids. And so at one position that I was in, I would get dumped with a lot of work. And they would say, well, you don't have a family. Well, I mean, I might not have a, husband or children but i do have a family and i have a life so uh i think for a lot of people single people they think oh i don't need to worry about work-life balance just yet but you're setting the stage for future activities so yeah looking at those assignments up front and um kind of evaluating that situation yeah
0: negotiation i i looked it up in the dictionary which you know it was starting point of something to do and i was like i was very interested to see that it comes like from the Latin of, of basically not leisure. <laughs> you know, negotiation is not leisure. You know, it's kind of a, a, a business topic. And I thought, yeah, that's that's quite interesting actually because, uh, you know, life isn't certainly just about leisure and, and these relationships that were forming there um, – we don't often think through it. So we've been discussing all of the aspects to it and, and up front really trying to set expectations on both sides about what it's going to be. Also thinking about uh, key life skills, you know, um, and negotiation along with probably uh, problem solving and, and decision making and all those, they all kind of go together. But I think that's something that to do negotiation, negotiation should be something you'd be thinking about from a personal development point of view as well.
1: Yeah, so I have uh, nieces and nephews, and I learned some of my really good uh, negotiation tricks from, from my nieces and nephews. My niece is four years old. She can negotiate like no one else. You know, when she has her mind set on something, she's going to ask the same question ten different ways. So when you're thinking about it from a life skills point of view, uh, when you go out to dinner with your friends, you're negotiating on which restaurant? When you go on a date, you're negotiating which movie to watch, right? We negotiate every day in different components of our lives. We don't realize it. And so a lot of people, when they think of negotiation, they think, oh, I'm not in business. I can't do that. And it's like you pretty much negotiate anytime. time. So uh, like I said, it's a simple conversation. It's not a battle. So when you think about your life and when you ask people to do something for you or when they ask for you to do something for them and you're making an exchange, that's what a negotiation is. It's an exchange of value. So it's not leisure all the time, right? But sometimes you are negotiating for just some simple relaxation. So uh, my friend recently went on a cruise. She called the cruise line up and she negotiated a different room. She wanted an ocean view. And so she thought it would cost 500 bucks. She just simply called. She she called me. She goes, how do I negotiate with the cruise people? And I said, Just call them and say, hey, is there any way we can move my room? And they moved, and it didn't cost her anything extra. A lot of times, you just have to ask a question and be kind about it. You know, Negotiation is not a people give it this bad rap that it has to be this nasty, dirty thing, and it can be a very mutually beneficial gain. So uh, for my friend, like I broke it down for her, they want a happy client. They want you to take more cruises with them. Right. So, you know, if there's limited availability, they might make you pay. But if there's open availability, they'll switch you over because you're going to be a happy client. You're going to come back over and over again and you're going to tell everyone about that great experience you had. So just uh, in terms of negotiating for your life, just think about it in terms of how can I have this conversation and what's in it for the other person. Right. Don't don't just think if I win, they lose, because it can be a win win.
0: Just talk a little bit about your journey to get to this point. Um, At what stage did you think that you might become a uh, a pay equity advocate? Or or when did you think you you might have characteristics or upbringing or something that might lead you to this point?
1: Yeah, so this was not my my plan. Uh, Growing up throughout grade school, I thought I was going to be an attorney. So I got to college, first semester, uh, second test in poli-sci 101, and I got two Fs. And I went straight to the Career Center. <laughs> I went straight over there, took all of these tests, and uh, they told me, marketing, you should do marketing. So I'm like, I can't do political science. That's not working out for me. I see that, and it was like, I still had a few weeks before I could drop that class. So I, I immediately switched. And I was hesitant about marketing because I said, well, I'm not great with numbers. You know, I just didn't know enough. I'm a first-generation college student, so I didn't have a family blueprint or a pedigree of going to college and knowing which, which steps to follow. So I credit a lot of my foundation to my university for having resources that I could tap into. But still, pay equity is not on my radar. So I finished school. Um, working part-time at Victoria's Secret when I graduate with my bachelor's degree and when I decided to go to grad school in Ohio I was able to transfer um, to a different Victoria's Secret so I was um, the person I worked with in Louisiana gave me a lot of fundamental tools for management a management position opened up right away in Ohio so now I'm a manager at Victoria's Secret and I'm a full-time MBA student my life was nuts Okay. So that burnout. Like I was sleeping in the store sometimes. So I ended up working for a newspaper. So the the reason why I'm telling you the different jobs that I had is because hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, I didn't think that I would use any of those skills to be a pay advocate. I had no idea of being a, a gender pay advocate at all. But fast forward to the time where I'm working at the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta and I'm going to networking events. When I was introduced to Labo League and that first event where I left and I felt some type of way about the wage gap and is this real? And I had these questions swirling in my head. As I was doing my research for that, it was like uh, something sparked. It was a fire that was lit. And so when I did my first workshop, it was a free workshop in Atlanta for women to come and learn about negotiating and 100 women showed up. And I knew at that moment, it was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. So um, yeah, it wasn't an obvious path. But looking back on all of the things I had done in my career, I did a lot of negotiating throughout. You know, So a lot of those real life skills that I had from different uh, work experiences helped me to get to this point. And now when I talk in front of groups of women, I just shared on Facebook, people ask me, how do you speak? And how do I get to speak in front of groups? I've been speaking in front of groups since I was a preteen, you know. The church that I attended, I read the Sunday school report so uh, with my friend every Sunday and in in high school, I took speech classes and I was in the speech club. And so those first few jobs I had in my professional career speaking to groups of people, that gave me the confidence to be able to talk to anybody. So a lot of times when I present on the gender wage gap, I have some hecklers in the audience, people who, they're looking for a battle, and I know how to handle them because I have that customer service background, so I can educate an audience, give them tips, but then also handle the people who don't believe there is a wage gap, and there's a lot of trolls out there, you know, uh, I've learned to use that block button on Twitter (laughs) because I don't want to get myself emotionally riled up, and so... um, yeah, my journey was, it wasn't linear, but now that I look back, I can see how each step in my journey has helped me to advocate very confidently for equal pay.
0: Do you consider yourself a feminist, and what is a feminist?
1: Yeah, yeah, I consider myself a feminist, and um, there's this book by, uh, and I'm going to mess her name up, it's Chimma, and I'm not even going to pronounce her last name, her book says we should all be feminists, and in her book, she, she has a TED Talk too, but she talks about... Uh, She didn't want to be the lipstick wearing feminist or the high heel wearing feminist. And um, a lot of times people are like, Do you hate men? And I'm like, No, you know, I I actually love my boyfriend. I'm very much in love in my relationship. The thing is, I think equality and feminism is just equality for men and women, you know? And it's not putting one down for the other to win. And so when I talk about the gender wage gap in the workplace, some men ask me, well, you're gonna take money away from men. And it's, no, it's not taking money away from men, it's valuing each person for the contributions that they give to the organization. And it's not downing anyone at all.
0: I certainly didn't know uh, that you worked at Victoria's Secret. And so now people can understand that you can like Victoria's Secret and want humans to be equal at the same time, <laughs> yeah, it, it is possible.
1: Yeah, I, I often joke around Christmas season cause that's the most exciting season to work at Victoria's Secret cause it's so busy and uh, really busy. And I miss the girls I work with. So I'll, I'll tag them all on Facebook probably once a year. And I'll say I missed the busiest time of the year with the sexiest women in the world. And that's no shade to anyone, you know. uh, But it's just a a fun memory that I had working in the stores with different groups of women. And I wouldn't trade that experience for the world.
0: So let's talk about Dallas. And you've growing up between here, here, Louisiana, and Atlanta, that's right, and I'll throw this out here as I did at the start, that, you know, are Atlanta and Dallas the same city, they tend to be grouped together, why or why not are they the same?
1: So, I lived in Atlanta for eight years, um, and I thought that Atlanta and Dallas were very similar, you know, when I decided to move here, I thought, oh, it's just like Atlanta, Uh, They're different. They're large cities and they're spread out and there are a lot of smaller cities that make up the metro areas, which I think is why a lot of people say they're large. You know, the airports are huge and big hubs. Um, I love Atlanta and I spent eight years there, so I have so many deep relationships there. People often ask, which one do you like better? And I can't really compare because I've only been in Dallas for a full year now. But there are certain things that I love about Dallas. and so no, no shade to Atlanta at all, but one of the biggest things that I love about Dallas is the parks. You know, in Atlanta, you have to drive to a park. You're either going to Stone Mountain or you're going to Piedmont Park, right? And You got to drive there. Um, There's so many neighborhood parks all throughout Dallas, and I absolutely love that it's a walkable city and the neighborhood that I live in, uh, Knox Henderson, you know I can walk anywhere. And so when I lived in Atlanta, I loved my neighborhoods, but I definitely needed to get in my car, and so, you know, traffic isn't uh, really great in Atlanta. Most of the time in Dallas, if there's traffic, you know it's an accident, right? So um, those are the pluses, but, you know, when I get back to Atlanta, I'll go to my favorite restaurant, um, The General Muir. It's a Jewish, Jewish deli, and I used to go there every single morning, so they have a caramel latte that they call the Jackie because I would order it all the time so uh, that's the Jackie and I love coffee and and because coffee is casual and it's a a really personal thing I think that's why uh, the person who served me coffee every day I didn't even have to tell him what I ordered he saw me walking in or saw my car out front and he put the order in and so uh, Paul is one of my really good friends now and he's the one who uh, talked to the managers at that restaurant and said, hey, we need to put this in the system so I can bring it up as Jackie. Yeah,
0: it's kind of a weird thing that's happened with this whole, with barista culture, and you just reminded me, you know, we've kind of got these relationships now with these other people, particularly the, the folks that give us our coffee, and probably for good reason, yeah. <laughs> too. But uh, I'm I'm not sure if you would have told someone 50 years ago that you would be going up and paying X number of dollars to get this <laughs> coffee and, and, and uh, exchanging mm-hmm. small talk with somebody that knows probably a lot about you.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have believed it either. And, um, you know, as a millennial, people say, well, they should stop drinking those $5 Starbucks drinks a day. And I'm like, hey, we can all spend our money different ways. We just need to make more if we want $5 uh, cups of coffee each day. So I'm going to keep getting my lattes.
0: Well, that could be something you could include in your negotiation package as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> all
0: right. So let's talk about current projects that you've got on. What do you want to tell our listeners about?
1: Yeah. So um, right now, I over the past year and a half of working with women, a lot of women have negotiated their salaries, but they also have a passion for a side hustle. So they're tiptoeing into entrepreneurship, and so a lot of the resources that I'm starting to develop are just the fundamentals for women to negotiate for their side business. You know, a lot of times, as a side hustle project, uh, people will say, "Oh, I'll do it for free. I need the experience. I need the experience." Well you get burned out and you get burned because it costs you money to do whatever you're doing so just helping women set those boundaries from the very beginning to price their services appropriately for their skill level Uh, you know when you're starting out you can't charge what somebody's been doing for like 15 years but you can't charge you know so um, that's one of the projects I'm working on working on a new book um, So that's a negotiation book for women, and as you probably can tell from listening to this podcast, anyone can apply these skills to their situations, but that's um, one of the big projects that I'm working on now. So um, I'm big on Twitter, so anything that I have coming up, you can pretty much always find it on Twitter or my LinkedIn profile.
0: What do you think of Twitter? You actually say on your Twitter that you love Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did that start? And have, have you evolved such a love relationship with, uh, with Twitter? I've got a love-hate relationship, as I've said many times on the show with Twitter, but please.
1: Yeah, so this is how it started. Um, when I was an undergrad, I had a friend, Fayon, and he was like my most progressive friend. He left Louisiana first, he moved to New York City, and he was my role model. You know, I really looked up to him. So he was on Twitter. So I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, he's doing it. And now I've surpassed him in followers. He's like, how did that happen? Um, but when I worked for Gannett, which uh, owns USA Today, I worked for um, the News Messenger in Fremont, Ohio, in grad school after I left Victoria's Secret. They were doing furloughs. And so you couldn't work. And they made you take a week off at a time. And there's no communication with people at work. Well, as a marketing and advertising person for the paper, if I was out and about and I saw something that was a news story, you know, you just call it in. Well, they were like, well, we can't communicate with each other. But there's this tool called Twitter, and if you put it out to Twitter, you're not talking to anyone specifically, you're just putting it out in the world. So during my time at the news messengers where I really started using Twitter, um, and really that's where I went from like zero to 5,000 followers um, in that time frame. and. Um, I met so many great people from it uh when I graduated with my MBA I actually you probably go back um to May 2nd 2009 and see my tweets I I tweeted my whole ceremony and I had Twitter friends who actually sent me graduation gifts which I thought was amazing so um I'm really big on developing online relationships and taking them offline and turning them into in-person relationships. There are a couple of people I've done business with that I haven't met yet in person, but we have really strong relationships because we started it on Twitter. So that's why I love it. Uh, and you know, I didn't have cable for eight years, just got cable yesterday uh, for the first time in eight years, but I would get most of my sports news from Twitter. So, big into tweeting about the Saints football team, New Orleans uh, Saints. And so, I've developed so many other um, friendships with Who That Nation because of Twitter. So, because I've developed deep relationships, that's why I love it.
0: So, just in closing, uh, is there any life advice that you want to share with listeners who might want to get more out of their life, out of their work? Um, anything else you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, so you focus on work life balance. And I think um, in the context of negotiation, you know really think through what does this look like for you if you want to ask for a more flexible uh, work schedule and what does it look like for the employer okay because again it needs to be mutually beneficial so if you're gonna ask for um, a flexible work schedule where you're not coming into the office every day but there's a certain busy season or a couple of special projects you know if you're going to negotiate think about offering it to them on a trial basis at first to see you know does this work for our group because change can be scary, both for the employer and the employee. So try it on a trial basis. And then also mention, hey, when it's busy season, I'll be in here every day. And even though I might work from home on Thursdays, if there's an important meeting, I'm here. So when you think about negotiating and work-life balance, Think about both sides of the coin. Put yourself in the employer's shoes, too. And how can you make this a win for both of you? And I think that will really help you frame the conversation so that you can get more of what you want in terms of work-life balance.
0: Any other final words for listeners?
1: No, follow me on Twitter and, uh, and send me a tweet and let me know that you listen to this podcast so I can uh, interact with you. And hopefully we can develop some friendships from there as well.
0: Jacqueline Twilly, thanks for joining me today.
1: My pleasure.